My name's Minnie. You don't know me, I'm from a different movie. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I have a pie that I bake. It's a mighty kind gesture of you. Thank you. It looks delicious. Hey, is this what I think it is? It is. Mmm, <laughs> my favorite. I'm not from New York. It's Saturday night! Welcome to the Saturday Night Live After Party. This week we'll be discussing Season 42, Episode 15 of Saturday Night Live with host Octavia Spencer and musical guest Father John Misty. I'm John Murray, and joining me this week is Steve Finn. Steve is the host of Transparency on CHMR 93.5 FM in St. John's, Newfoundland. You can connect with Steve on Facebook at Transparency CHMR, and you can connect with us at snlafterparty.fm. If you're enjoying our podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. These reviews help us to get the word out, and they're greatly appreciated. All right, enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, Octavia Spencer. Okay, a quick program note before we get into it. At the end of our last podcast, the Alec Baldwin episode, I announced that we were going to be releasing a vintage rewatch episode during the, the three-week hiatus that just ended. Unfortunately... After that episode, I got sick, uh, was moving really slow with, with the edit for the Alec Baldwin episode. And even though you and I did, uh, sit down and record that I wasn't able to get that out in time and I might've, but last week I got a surprise email from NBC saying that they were going to send me a couple tickets to the show. So my whole week was kind of upended. I had to get a whole bunch of legit work out of the way so that I could clear a path to get to New York in time to see the show. So because of all of that hullabaloo and getting over this chest cold, uh, it just didn't happen, but we have it in the can and edited at this point. So I am going to release it during the next hiatus. So it'll be out in a few weeks when, when the show goes on break again. All right. Now I wanted to obviously thank NBC for sending those tickets along. That was awesome. I was able to get to the show. And I also wanted to thank Reddit user Farmer Hoynes for being my last minute companion for the evening. Farmer Hoynes, you brought a measure of class and sophistication to the evening that would have otherwise been sorely lacking. And uh, I also wanted to thank you so much for putting aside your better judgment and instead agreeing to meet up with some anonymous online creeper late at night in Manhattan who claimed he could get you into SNL No Strings Attached. That was a, a leap of faith that I hope paid off for you. Uh, anyways, it was just uh, it was great that we could make that work and it was nice meeting you and it was a fun evening. So, yeah, I hope you enjoyed yourself now. On our last podcast, I was joined by comedian and impressionist Matthew Hawkins. We had a lot of fun, and uh, during the, the recording, he regaled me with a really fascinating story about his experience of moving to New York and working the comedy scene there, and his attempt to actually get on SNL. And he was able to get a main stage audition at SNL, interestingly enough, alongside Melissa Villasenor, who did actually make it into the cast this year. So we, we talked all about his experience and how we went about trying to lay the groundwork and build connections and, and get his foot in the door, so to speak. And it was just a lot of fun. But by the time we were done talking about it, we'd burned up the better part of an hour. So it was way too long to fit into that cast. So I thought it might be better to pull that out entirely and release it as a side bonus. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put it up on our website along with this release and uh, I'll link to it in the show notes. So anyone who wants to hear his account of what it was like trying to get in the mix there at SNL, they can check it out on our website. And uh, like I said, link will be in the show notes. Okay. Feedback. Reddit user pretty in pink. She says, can you touch on the fact that Bobby Moynihan is signed on to a CBS pilot and whether or not it means that this will be his last season? Thoughts? Well, it's always nice to hear from Pretty in Pink. I feel like uh, she's a good friend of the show at this point. I feel like I know her. Yeah, she is. Actually, before I put it out on Reddit to offer the tickets up, I reached out to her. But she did have the good sense to realize that there's no way in hell I'm meeting up with, with some you know weird Reddit person in Manhattan sight unseen. So yeah. good on her for having the the keen sense and, and judgment to not <laughs> take me up yeah. on my offer. <laughs> so what are your thoughts? Bobby Moynihan. The signs were there because you could see he's kind of taking on a more limited capacity on 
SNL itself mm-hmm. with the roles he's doing. He's not quite as front and center as he has been in previous years after he was proven. Right, right. And that's always a, a clear sign that they're on their way out. And I'd say Lauren would love to have Bobby on for several more years. It does feel like Bobby is making the decision for himself to look to the future. And I, I would miss him on the show, but I'm also excited to see more of what Bobby does after he leaves, because I've always enjoyed seeing him in other projects. So if he has more time to um, commit to shows and movies and stuff, it'll probably be great for him. And he'll become more of a household name than he already is. Yeah, it it does seem like he's been ramped down this season. We haven't seen him at the weekend update desk, even though he's drunk uncle, he's riblet. Uh, he has so many characters he could be bringing. It seems like I don't know if it, if there's a conscious ever, but it just seems like they're not relying on him. They're utilizing the the younger cast and the up and comers a bit more, which is the way it should be. He did his seven years and then he agreed to a two year extension on top of that. So, yeah, he's definitely <laughs> given the best years of his life to the show and uh, he deserves to launch. And I don't know what the project is either. I just I, I hope it pans out because at this point it's just a pilot, which doesn't mean it's been picked up to air. It doesn't mean they've been commissioned to do a full season or even a half season. So. This could be like a Mulaney situation too. You never know when you launch from the show, if the project that you attach yourself to is going to get traction and and really become a a good vehicle for the next, you know, five, seven years or whatever that you hope it will be. I'm really hopeful because he's one of my favorites on the show. And I think he's just brimming with talent and uh, just a genuinely nice guy too. So I, I, I hope it works out for him. I really do. But to put a bookend on that, I think this is definitely his last season. I don't see how you commit to, potentially picking up a show and not have your exit strategy figured out. So yeah, let's get ready to say bye to Bobby. Yeah. I'd be surprised if we're not actually saying goodbye to him. Yep. Pretty in pink also asks, what about, you know, some of the other key members like Vanessa Bayer who are also at the top of their contracts? Are we expecting any of them to leave? Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? I could see Vanessa putting in another year or so, you know, if she can milk a little bit more out of SNL to support a career to go on after it, maybe it would be beneficial for her to do another year, but it's not necessary. She's going to do well either way she goes. So it could be the last we see of her after this season. And I would be sad to see her go just like I would be sad to see Bobby go. Yeah. I I think she could stick with the show if she wanted to. She's been doing a lot of consistent supporting roles in movies. So she's finding work outside the show. That's not an issue. She, she does have talent and she is carving out a, a spot or a, I guess like a type of role that, that, that she can flourish in. The problem is it's not really like leading roles. And so I wonder if it's a little scary to give up SNL and not know if you're ever going to be able to headline or, or really like come to the fore in a project or if you're always going to be the caddy friend. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to see her in limited roles. I don't want her to be five minutes of a movie. I'd like to see really good material for her. And I just don't know if she's established herself to that point. So I wouldn't want to see her go yet. And she's one of my favorites on the show too. So it's not like I really ever want to see her go, but it's a lot easier to take if you know that they're launching and the sky's the limit for them. I feel like this is Bobby's time. I think it it makes sense for him to figure out what the next step is. I don't think Vanessa's got quite as clear a path laid out in front of her. So I hope she sticks around and and just keeps working on building up her cred outside the show. Yeah, me too. So uh, who else does that leave? Uh, Keaton, I guess. (laughs) Keaton's... It's funny. At a certain point, you've been at the show so long that People should just stop asking. He's there as long as he wants to be there, I guess. Yeah. It would be so hard to replace him and what he brings to the show. And I don't think Lauren's looking. They've brought in a plethora of other black male players throughout the years, and they all serve their purpose too. Impressionists and and people with a different edge or a different take. But Keenan is still Keenan and he still, he still thrives in that environment he might just be the first lifer, right? Like he just might just never leave the show. I, I don't know. Uh, or maybe he'll take over as announcer someday. <laughs> that seems to be the the next step for the tenured <laughs> players that seem to stay with the show for generations. I don't know. Uh, Keenan's great. It, it really is a great fit for him. So I don't know if he's even trying that hard to, to do anything else. I, I, 
he's he's a unique case in the history of the show. We've never really seen a player that just got as established and comfortable as he got with the show. Yeah, I think he's still got his feet up on the ottoman. He's <laughs> he's he's got no uh no reason to go. He's he's made a home there. Yeah, like you said, I don't think Lauren is looking for a Keenan replacement. I think that would be redundant and a waste of time because if Keenan ever did leave some 10, 20 years later, sure. <laughs> he he will leave behind a hole that'll never be filled. Yeah, he's been a consistent factor for so many seasons now. It keeps the show a little more grounded. You're you're right that it just it won't quite feel like the same show when he goes. You know, whenever they get that Family Matters reboot off the ground and he takes on the role of Carl Winslow. <laughs> Carol Winslow. Okay. Yeah. Couldn't you see him in that role? Yeah. Put a mustache on. I'm sure. Yeah. Flummox dad. Just all of those spit takes that Keenan can do. I, I could see that translating into a sitcom role. a la Carl Winslow someday, just for whatever reason, the right vehicle hasn't, hasn't landed in his lap. Yeah. Put a bomb in a treadmill, throw him on the treadmill. It's comedy gold. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you remember that episode, right? Yes, of course. I've seen every TGIF episode ever produced. So, <laughs> All right. Reddit user Snails, Lime, and B-Spit. New feedback. I, I don't think we've had anything from Snails, Lime, and B-Spit before. No, that's, uh, that doesn't sound familiar. <laughs> yeah. He or she says, I'm curious why Kate was so underused in this episode. I can understand not using her in sketches in the first half as she had that recurring Kellyanne texting bit, but she could have been inserted into just about any of the post weekend update sketches and improved them by leaps and bounds. Okay. So you take that on first. I've got a couple thoughts, but I'll reserve judgment till I hear what you have to say. Yeah. Well, I don't think anybody should be concerned (laughs) about Kate's future with the show. If she, you know, wasn't in every single sketch. I mean, she had the cold open as Jeff Sessions and really killed that, Mm -hmm. you know, she pretty much agreed with uh, whoever had the idea to kind of pepper herself throughout the episode as Kellyanne Conway. Right. And for her to do that, it would be kind of difficult for her to, you know, constantly be in that costume and also be changing in and out of it to do other sketches as well. Right. So if she's making that commitment, she's kind of agreeing to take a step back for that episode and, leave it to her colleagues to, to carry it more so than her because they decided to go that route. I think that that's probably the obvious answer to this question. Like you said, just from a production standpoint, if you're going to have her on hand to be a living sight gag throughout the show, then yeah, you, you don't also want her scurrying backstage to try and get in and out of a wig or something for some other role. But that said, a lot of times when people have concerns that someone's being underutilized, they don't know what sketches got cut. You know, that player may have been heavily involved in a lot of show material that just for whatever reason, they throw it up, address it, didn't play. So for that show, they don't have much of a presence, but that doesn't mean that they weren't in the mix, weren't generating and that the show wasn't planning on utilizing them. It just really comes down to that final chopping block where they have to make tough calls about just what was the funniest in the moment. So if for whatever reason this week, some of the sketches that she was involved in just didn't play, you know, so be it. Like you said, she's not in any danger at the show. She is, she is the queen bee. And, uh, even in a show where someone might say, well, compared to what she normally gets, she's underutilized. She was still there. She was still that living sight gag. She still had the cold open. She was still, I mean, what Pete Davidson got one pre-tape for the whole night. (laughs) You know, like let's, let's keep some perspective. Kate is still owning the show, even in an episode that maybe is a little more understated. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's, let's put that to bed. Let's get into the show. Our cold open. Kate McKinnon is Jeff Sessions playing out a parody of the classic opening scene from Forrest Gump. What'd you think? Yeah, I thought it was great. Mm-hmm. Opens up with a nice little visual effect with the uh, superimposed feather. Right. Kind of floating down. That was a nice touch to add to live television. It did work as a, as a format to kind of poke fun at all the controversy that has followed this sessions guy around. Yeah. I enjoyed it. And this is one of Kate's uh, uh, newer characters. That's a lot of fun. And it kind of plays into the women playing Trump's cabinet that's <laughs> getting under their skin. So yeah, it was, it, it really worked and I enjoyed it for what it was. Yep. I thought it was fun. I thought it was smart. I like that this wasn't Alec Baldwin or spicy, right? Those are great and they've had their place in the show and we're going to see more of them throughout the season, but yeah, an, a fresh cold open with a fresh backdrop. 
that just feels nice at this point in the season. I I'm ready to freshen things up. And, uh, this was great in the studio. It was kind of neat. Uh, <laughs> I'm sitting off stage, right. With my companion for the evening and they bring out the backdrop and we're like, okay, what are they setting up for? It's obviously not going to be like the press briefing room. So it's not spicy. We're we've, we've taken that off the table. Uh, it's not Trump's office. It's okay. So it's not an Alec Baldwin thing. And then they bring out the bench and immediately I'm thinking, oh, okay, this has to be a Forrest Gump parody before anything else. And then my companion saw the cue cards. She's trying to parse from the cue cards, what's going on. And all she can really make out is Jeff, like, you know, Jeff and then line Jeff and then line. So we figured out as they're setting up, okay, we've got Jeff sessions. We've got a park bench. This definitely looks like they're setting up Jeff sessions to play Forrest Gump. And we both had that peg before the show started. And uh, then when, Kate comes out in the white suit that clenched it. So that was a a lot of fun to try and figure that out in the moment and actually get it right. So part of the experience of being in the room and seeing all the little pieces start to be assembled and try to figure out if you can get one step ahead of it. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. Some people were saying, oh, that bus transition, come on SNL. It's 2017. We can do a better bus transition than a piece of cardboard. What they probably don't understand is that they were doing that live off to the side of the home base where they had the cold open stage where they had the bench. They had a green screen table with a, like just a wooden track on it. And they had two stage hands whose job it was to literally push that bus across the green screen, across that track. Every time they do a transition, because they need to be looking over and lining it up with when the production assistants are actually ushering the next character to the bench. Right. When they're making the switch. Yeah. Yeah. So in order for that to really work and play in the moment, you need to have everyone being kind of in eyesight of each other so that you can just get that timing down. So that kind of seems like why they opted to do it in this low rent fashion. But above that, I think it just is kind of fun because sometimes when you do it so low rent, it actually makes it a little more charming. (laughs) See, I feel a little bit silly now because I thought they literally took the, the bus flat and put it in front of the camera there in front of the actual performers. So you're saying that was superimposed on kind of like that feather was. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that wasn't literally in front of them. It was just, okay. It was a a second camera off to the side that was capturing that isolated element on top of the green screen that they could composite in real time. So whenever it came into frame, that was just layered into whatever was going out live. So it was totally up to the, the technician's hands to make sure that the timing of that bus going across the screen was smooth and in line with when the players are taking their seat on the bench and getting out of frame. Right on. Yeah. So in the moment, those kind of things are a lot of fun to see how they figure out how to stage all that. And it worked great. I thought it worked really great. And uh, I'm trying to think if there's an obvious connection between Forrest Gump and Jeff Sessions, other than, you know, the fact that he has a Southern accent uh, he was the Senator. Yeah. Senator from Alabama and Forrest Gump was from Alabama. So you've got two characters that represented a simpler, more racist time in right. American history. And like all of their political caricatures, they're not trying to mimic them perfectly. They're trying to find a fun comedic take on them. And in this case, they're again, going back to that out of his depth, simple minded kind of old sensibility and by layering Forrest Gump into that, it makes it that much richer. So I, I thought it was a great fusion, a really great way to utilize that character and a great way to freshen up the cold open, which we desperately needed. You gotta love Alec Baldwin, but I just, I didn't need to see him this week. So this was great. It was uh, it was refreshing yep. to see something not Trump centric. Yeah, it was a good way to start the show. I enjoyed it. Monologue. Octavia Spencer has resting nurse face. <laughs> this is a pretty run-of-the-mill monologue, right? It stays focused on her. She doesn't really have anyone flanking her. It's just her talking to the audience, throwing out a few fun jokes, talking a little bit about her career and goofing on herself. And she's in and out pretty quick. You know, Octavia Spencer did appear to be capable Mm -hmm. of giving a monologue and carrying it. Does she have the best comedic timing in the world? No, she's more of a traditional actor. Mm -hmm. She's dramatic. She's shown throughout the episode that she is funny and can make us laugh. The problem I had with this monologue is that they probably could have sent her out there with a bit better material. I did like the whole observation that she does play a lot of nurses. That is true. Mm -hmm. It did feel a little bit short, but that's probably because they could only 
get so much out of that concept. I don't know. They they probably batted around a few ideas, and this is what they came out with. But it's hard to you know agree that this is the absolute best monologue idea they could have for this host. Yeah. I wonder if sometimes we impose a little bit more on the monologue than what it's supposed to be. It really is just supposed to say, hey, I'm here. We've got a great show. <laughs> Stick around. We'll be right back. Like that's kind of just what it's supposed to accomplish. And because we have a few really high special moments throughout a season, we tend to assume that every monologue should be shooting for that. And I don't know if the show really thinks of it that way. I wonder if sometimes they just think, you know what? It's okay. You know, let's just not make it bigger than it needs to be this week. I will give it to him that the actual resting nurse face moment where she pulls the face mm. mugs for camera two. Right. That was a great moment of the show for sure. I do love when they get the timing of the cut, right? So that those jokes really play. Uh, sometimes they miss it. And so you still get the person mid turn before they've turned on the face or you get it a little late where the joke is already kind of gone before you cut to the camera in live TV. That doesn't always work. So I, I like that. This one just, it felt tight. The The cut just felt very precise for what they were trying to do. And it made the joke work. So that was good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's not dwell on it. It was simple. Got us into the show, but nothing more to say about it. First pre-tape courage, compassion, country, the TBD story starring Bradley Whitford. Probably, probably, <laughs> probably. What'd you think? I thought it was uh, pretty funny. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure where they were going. Like, what are they going to reveal about this person? Because they held that uh, shot of him back on for a long time. Right. So I thought, you know, whatever they're going to reveal, that'll be the joke. And the joke ended up being that there's nothing to reveal because <laughs> there's no one that's standing up yeah. to Trump <laughs> as of yet. <laughs> yeah. As it stands, it remains to be determined, as they <laughs> said over and over again in this trailer. It was a funny concept. Yep. I thought it was fun. It was something that had to be told in a heightened visual style. So you needed that movie trailer with that pacing and with the voiceover, they had to do it as a pre-tape. And I always like that. I like it when they utilize uh, the medium uh, effectively. Pretty sure that's the guy from honest trailers who did the, um, the narration of that trailer. It could be whoever it was, does an excellent movie voiceover guy voice, the deep and, you know, in a world, in a world, <laughs> whoever they got, they captured that. Absolutely. Yeah. Fun. First sketch. Mrs. Williams is suing Merck pharmaceuticals for naming their drugs after her black friends and family. The observation being that all of Merck's product names sound suspiciously like they could be actual names of black people. <laughs> the urban type. Yes. Yes. I thought that that was a fun little observation to make. And I think that they took it to a sufficiently ridiculous uh, conclusion. What did you think? Did, did this play? Yeah. It was, I, I like where they went with that idea. Yeah. It was, it was a great way to explore that and great supporting stuff from Sashir and, and uh, Leslie. I'm going to challenge that because Leslie had a moment in there where her joke was supposed to be that there was someone at the yogurt company named Activia and there's a, there's a type of yogurt called Activia. Right. So she was basically doing the same gag, but calling out another company for doing it. But she said Octavia because she's looking at Octavia and then she actually goes, Oh, sorry. And then she pushes the sketch back to the other players. Yeah. So because of that, I don't know if I can give Leslie high marks. I mean, this is what we expect from Leslie. <laughs> it's, it is very, is a Leslie thing to do. Yeah. At a certain point, it almost becomes charming because you could build a drinking game around. How is Leslie going to flub a line in, in this particular sketch? <laughs> so, I mean, it didn't, it didn't ruin the sketch. And like I said, it, it's kind of charming at this point that this is, this is Leslie's shtick, but yeah, I wouldn't say that her performance was strong in it. Sashir did fine. Yeah. And Octavia did fine. She's good at committing to the character and finding a good tone for the character. I didn't find anything lacking throughout the night. Other than a few lines that she stumbled over, I thought Octavia Spencer did a really good job of being in the moment and and doing what she's supposed to do as a host. I thought she was very competent. Yeah. Let's not forget um, some of the comedy goal coming from the other side. Alex Moffat had a really great line (laughs) being associated with uh, high cholesterol and erectile dysfunction. (laughs) Yeah. The way he snapped out of that despondence was a really great comedy beat. Yep. I'm liking him more and more as time goes on. I really want to see him stick around. Actually, I have to say of all the cast members that I 
cross paths with last night. He was the most gregarious and generous with his time, like being willing to actually engage in a little bit of conversation. And it's not really just kind of like, yeah, I'll do a selfie and then kind of exit as quickly as I can. He just seemed like a really decent guy. And now I'm really rooting for him more than I was before. That's great. They say never meet your heroes. And there are some uh, cast members from olden days who don't have the best reputation for being so nice. Right. But uh, it, it is always nice to hear that, you know, the people you admire on the show are, are as grounded as you would hope they are. Well, because he's only, what is it? 15 episodes in at this point, I don't think he's as jaded and cynical by his fan base as he probably will be, you know, five years down the road. Yeah. We'll, we'll see if that holds up. Uh, I Keenan obviously doesn't do as much. Even Bobby was pretty quick to try and just like shuffle out the door as, as quick as he could. So you can see the ones that are over it. <laughs> yeah. I think it was uh, Bill Murray said that anyone who becomes famous has a few years where they're just a totally like disagreeable jerk. Sure. Then they kind of take a step back and realize what they've become and kind of get back to a more agreeable person. Yeah. There probably is a cycle to it, right? You get burnt out and jaded because you probably do have a lot of fans that push, right? Like you don't always want people in your face and you just, uh, you don't want to be giving selfies to every person that you walk past in the street. I can understand why it becomes hard for a while, but then as you step back and say, well, no, really, these are the guys that are paying the bills. These are the ones that are tuning in. These are the ones that are buying the movie tickets. And so hopefully an appreciation builds up and you find a good balance where you don't overextend yourself and burn yourself out, but you're still respectful to your fans. And yeah, I'm sure that's a tough line to walk. And I know that not all celebrities do it, but I will say for what it's worth, most of the the people at SNL just seem very uh, down to earth and generous with uh, with their fans. Well, that's great. That's what I saw. Anyways. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Now where are we at here? Girl at a bar. We get another pre-tape this one. The setup is Cecily goes to a bar and all of these wonderful self-actualized sincere guys come up to talk to her. But then of course they show their true colors as soon as she turns them down and will not put out. Not as woke as they would want you to believe. <laughs> yes. Yes. So the message being at the end of the day, all guys are insincere, selfish, horny pigs. <laughs> it's true though. Yeah. I, I really can't argue with it because I'm sure that this sketch really comes from personal experience of women going to a bar and being told that they're a bitch when they decide that they don't want to indulge some guy's skeevy behavior. I can see the truth in that. And it makes me feel bad as a guy that we do not present as well as I wish we would <laughs> as a gender. But yeah, there are a lot of guys that are living up to this reputation and I think there's some truth in it. And for that, it was smart. And, um, 80 is a, a crass little, little thing that <laughs> was the perfect button for it. And, uh, I enjoyed it. I thought that they found a good way to get out too by bringing her in at the end and then flipping her character because she's she's always game to be that <laughs> that uh hypersexual <laughs> miscreant. Right. Here's the thing. There's so many guys who act socially conscious not for altruistic reasons, but right. because they think they're scoring points and they think, you know, the women that they want will want them back because they share similar ideals. Yep. And they almost treat it like it's a currency and say I give you enough feminism. Yes. <laughs> and you give me your boobs. Yeah. Like it's <laughs> I'll indulge the things that are important to you, but within a short period of time, you need to reciprocate or you're a bitch. Right. Yeah, exactly. You're a bitch. They can't even understand. It's like, why am I getting rejected? I did everything right. Mm -hmm. I said that Hillary <laughs> should become president and I went on a women's march. Like, didn't I do enough to earn this? Yeah. I played my part. I played the role. Now, why am I not getting any? Yeah. It's sad. It's really sad that that's the, the shallow thinking, but. This is a tale as old as time. <laughs> Probably not that much more to say about it. It was a fun outing. The message is pretty obvious. And uh, the shame of it is that, yeah, there's, there's some truth there. Moving on. Zoopolis, a live sketch where our up and coming impressionists have another very easy vehicle to be able to throw out some uh, celebrity impressions. What's your takeaway? I always love these type of sketches. This is something that the impressionists needed. Mm -hmm. Every time I've seen Melissa Villasenor do her impressions, she's only limited to 
maybe one or two within the sketch because it's not really about that or it's right. about that for a lot more people. Like the family feud sketches, everybody gets one impression. Right. But the impressive thing about Melissa's impersonations is that her range is so amazing and she can rapid fire a whole bunch of uh, different impressions and you could see the audience just getting more and more hyped <laughs> about it and yeah. being really impressed. You probably felt that around you while the sketch was going on. The Kate McKinnon one blew everyone away. Like that was a moment. Even before she said anything, she just got it like, yeah, she got the mannerisms. Yeah. She does the face as well as the voice. Yeah. Yeah. And Alex Moffat was great. eh? He was, I think I'm pretty sure his, uh, Hugh Grant. I think that was part of his audition. I think that's one he's had in his pocket for a while. Just like Seth Meyers. Yeah. I have a feeling Alex Moffat's Hugh Grant is better than Seth Meyers. I wonder if they've, they behind the scenes, if they've gone toe to toe, but this was fun. This was super lazy. Like I'm not going to give it high marks for concept or writing or anything like this was very much a vehicle for impressions, but because all the impressions were so spot on for me, it was a win. I enjoyed it. Like I said, Kate McKinnon was a big moment. Her Julia Louis-Dreyfus was short, but it was there. It was very sharp. And uh, even Octavia Spencer, she was able to pitch in and and do some of the quintessential black characters that we might expect. Plus Judy Dench. Yes, plus Judy Dench, which was probably the actual funniest line of it. If there was actual comedy in it, it was probably Judy Dench's line, which I will not repeat for safe for work reasons. Yeah, probably a good idea. (laughs) So yeah, this was fun. I enjoyed it. After Zoopolis, we get another pre-tape, Youngblood, a wise neighborhood sage uses chess to inspire a wayward youth. What'd you think? I thought it was pretty good. I recognized that whole explaining uh, how it works on the streets via a chessboard from The Wire. I'm sure some of our listeners have seen that show and might have recognized that. What I did like about this sketch is the same reason I liked the um, Malik and Chandra sketch, because it was a, a similar thing going on where you know, if you want to appear <laughs> tough and intimidating, you can't have your car start. Like if you want to come off as wise and, you know, street smart, <laughs> you're going to need to at least know how to play the game that you're using yeah. as an analogy. Yeah. Your point's got to be lost if, you know, <laughs> this kid checkmates you immediately. Right, right. So that's where the humor comes from in this. And all the stuff with Octavia Spencer is just gravy on top of that. Yeah. So it was it was a really good pre-tape, I thought. It was. Yeah. I, I don't know if I was pulling from the same trope that you were like you, you mentioned that you saw something in the wire that you felt inspired it. I'm thinking more of the, the black equivalent of like goodwill hunting. Okay. Those inspirational movies where you do, you get the mentor figure and I'm thinking this is like Morgan Freeman in pretty much anything he's ever done. Kind of a thing where yes, you've got someone who maybe doesn't come off all that impressive. You know, it's just this cantankerous old guy off in the corner playing chess or whatever, but he's got the goods he's wise and he has something to offer that can really help this wayward youth in life. I think that's a trope that probably has run through a lot of movies and there was something there that I was connecting with. The obvious inversion here is that when it comes right down to this, like you said, this guy really doesn't (laughs) have any game and Pete Davidson bests him effortlessly. So whereas he's supposed to be schooling Pete Davidson, Pete Davidson, and then all of his friends chiming in as they go are really schooling him. His whole cred is, is crumbling around him while Octavia Spencer's off at the side, giving him the resting nurse face condemnation stare. (laughs) Yeah. So that whole collision there that happens in the middle of it is really effective. And I, I felt that it was a lot of fun. I think I, I could connect with where they were coming from and I could see where they flipped it on its head. And I think that's good comedy when you can take something like that. And then there's a little turn there that, that twists it and makes it a little bit more subversive. And then for me, again, three pre tapes in a row, all of them had something special that I walked away saying these were good. These were good. These were fun. I felt this was much more successful than Chandra and Malik in its clarity of message where Chandra and Malik, I felt was a little muddier. Yeah. And it might be that extra element of, Octavia Spencer. So there was some way to end it by having her there to interact with after the main conflict was done. Yeah. 
she's kind of no nonsense and she summed up this situation and she's really, really when it comes down to it, she's the one with the good. She's the wise old sage. Yeah. Whereas this other guy is just kind of a poser. Yeah. It was, it was fun. There was a, just a lot of fun little, little things that they flipped on their head in it and uh, walked away very happy. Actually walked away very happy with this whole first half of the show. I got to say now that brings us to our musical performances. Father John Misty sings total entertainment forever and his second song, pure comedy. Do you have any thoughts on Father John Misty? Well, I'm a fan. Good. I really enjoyed this performance. And I'm saying I'm a fan not because I knew who he was before I watched this episode, because I didn't. But I've been made a fan by these two performances. Okay. He's a great, unique songwriter who really feels what he puts out there. You know it's coming from a soulful place in his heart. I always appreciate that when I see it. As for the music, I would describe it as uh, new music for old souls. <laughs> okay. You obviously got your Don McLean sounding voice coming out of him. Don McLean from Die Hard? Not John McLean. Don <laughs> McLean. I, I, I know. <laughs> I don't know why I felt it necessary to derail you with that stupid joke. <laughs> yippee ki <-yay. laughs> All right. So sorry, before I, I derailed you, where were you going with that? Well, aside from sounding like Don McLean, I kind of got a... Jackson Brown vibe from his style, maybe a little bit of Van Morrison in there. Mm, okay. This kind of music is a reminder that it's not all just synths and, uh, and blast beats out there. Sure. There's some real folk music being made and this guy's a real artist. Okay. Fair enough. I felt like I was hearing a little bit of Elton John kind of um, like a, a mellower kind of rock from the seventies that is kind of ballady and soaring and, uh, I, I felt like I was hearing a little bit of Elton John from some of that in there. Hmm. I don't know if, if he's trying to channel Elton John or if I'm just out in left field, but that was just something that came to mind. My take on it was, well, a, a couple of things. First off, the person that I went with, uh, Farmer Hoynes, they are a really, really big fan of Joshua Michael Tillman, who is Father John Misty. They know about his career prior to this persona and they just, they're really all about this. And it was actually because he was on the show that they were more adamant about trying to, to get in and probably why they were willing to risk meeting up with a serial killer to get into the show. <laughs> so I did get a little bit of an education on some of his sensibilities and, and why, why this particular person likes father John Misty. So I can certainly respect that there's a lot going on there that this is not music that is crafted purely to sell records. This is not music that is meant to be super mainstream that this guy, he has a message. He has a take, he has a voice and he really wants to be saying something specific. And so for that, I respect it. And I also respect it because in that second song, he gets to a point where he really digs and belts right near the end of the song. He really gives it vocally. And I love that. I love that when a performance really hits. So I thought musically, everything was very cool. I thought he was channeling some fun sounds that you don't hear as much of. And uh, I respect that he's definitely trying to bring his own voice and perspective to things. The only thing that kind of bothered me about it was that it very much came off like his shtick is that he's trying to betray how sincere the music sounds with how ironic and cynical the lyrics actually are. It just occurred to me that maybe that's an intentional thing. Like that's kind of what this whole father John Misty persona is about is about saying some very pointed, cynical, ironic things, but then fusing them with a sound that you wouldn't necessarily think would carry that kind of lyric. So I thought that was interesting, but as I get older, I find that I have less and less patience for cynical stuff. I feel like everyone has their own thoughts on how they want to fix the world. And I just don't always want my music to be someone's very sharp critique of everything. Like this guy, he takes down pretty much everyone that doesn't think exactly like him. You know, there's just a lot of stuff that he was swinging at. I, I just didn't need that strong of a commentary personally. I sometimes I just want something a little more mindless. You darn hipsters in your music. <laughs> yes. It doesn't always have to be so self-important. I just, uh, I just didn't want to be preached at. <laughs> That's all. Okay. So you thought I was preachy, but how about them dance moves? 
Yeah, well, that's the other part of it is that stuff doesn't win me over. <laughs> I don't need someone that looks like they're in a, a drug-addled haze flailing around the stage, contorting their, their torso while their limbs are askew. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it, this, was, uh, this was a mixed bag for me. Okay. Uh, okay. Let's, let's jump into Weekend Update. Anything inspiring about their opening salvo? Nothing that made me go, wow, this puts Weekend Update on the map sure. or anything like that, but it was some pretty good stuff. There was some good uh, good real-world stuff to draw from. Yeah, it was fun. I don't think it was super memorable, but they had lots to draw on, and all of the jokes were they were good. There was no great standout moment, but there wasn't anything that fell apart like we've had in a, a couple of the, the previous outings where it really felt shaky. I, didn't, I wasn't getting that sense. They, they felt like they were pretty much on top of the material tonight. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about our features. We get Eric and Donald Trump Jr. They are addressing concerns about their father's business involvement. Yeah. We've seen Eric and Donald Jr. another two times before. Now we haven't seen uh, Eric as a character say much more than his name. You're right. <laughs> you know, it was been a pretty good recurring joke yep. for the capacity that they had been used in, but now they've taken it up a notch and given them the floor for a few minutes. Right. It showed me how well that what they've settled on for these characters works for something like this. And it was a huge home run and great for the uh, feature players to get some screen time as well. Yep. I agree. They were able to find a lot of fun ways to flesh out what we've seen. So sporadically so far from these characters. So yeah, big win. I thought it was great. thought it was really great. Now that uh, Alex Moffat is, you know, my new favorite guy in the world, I wanted to draw attention to a little bit of performance where he gets the juice box. Yeah. Donald has punctured it for him and he chooses to just mash it into his face, which if we're being honest, I think most of us have probably done with those at one time or another where the straw breaks or something. And you just, you just go to town right on the juice box directly. Uh, anyways, he does that. <laughs> and while he's doing it, he kind of like lets his eyes glaze over and gets a little bit cross-eyed. And it's almost like, a baby getting mother's milk where it like soothes them and just puts them to sleep a little bit. And you kind of see his head drop and he just loses focus. He's just pulled right out of it. The juice box is the only thing that he needs to be contented. That is a little bit of a, a performance that I don't think a writer came to him and said, okay, now you need to present yourself as a baby being lulled to sleep almost with this juice box. I think that that's a little bit of performance that just he intuited and brought to it. And uh, I thought that was strong. I thought that was really good. It was. And on top of that, when he got the Cheerios and he puts a, a fistful of it in his mouth, <laughs> yes. he does that thing where you're getting, you get impatient with the chewing and you want to get to the swallowing where he starts to bob his head up and down. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm chewing, chewing materials. Yeah. Like all of that reminded me of a real, like of an, an actual child and what yeah. a child would do. Yep. It was a very accurate portrayal of children at that age. Yes. Yeah. Eric has gone from being maybe just mentally challenged to being infantile. And that's fun that they're continuing to grow the character and, and there's more humor there to be played up now that they can show him being managed the way that you would manage a toddler. Yeah. This was fun. This was really fun. And, uh, I hope we see some more of them. Cause I think there's probably some more avenues that they could explore and, and get some good jokes out of these two. Yeah. Now newscasters of tomorrow, Laura Parsons is back yet again. This time we're talking about the Oscars, transgender issues, and, um, you know, maybe some issues that grandma's having at the retirement home. Vanessa does this character so well <laughs> that I could see it a hundred times. It's her big pappy for me, yep. basically. <laughs> Anything in particular about the jokes that you thought was really strong, or is this just our typical Laura Parsons outing? My favorite part of those is whenever Michael Che asks her if she knows what blank is yeah. when she's talking about say transgendered bathrooms and Michael Che asks her, do you know what transgender even means? And she usually gets it right, <laughs> but in a very innocent child way, that's absolutely hilarious. Sure. That's probably my favorite element to this. And that's the part I find myself looking forward to. Yeah. There's a little bit here that's keeping it fresh. I hope that if they do bring it back, that they find more ways to mix it up because I don't want standard fair insert joke here kind of versions of this much more. Yep. Maybe make her a um, man on the street next time. <laughs> okay. Enough on Laura Parsons after weekend update. 
we get sticky bun, which is uh, a bunch of employees in training are struggling to follow the company's protocols. My immediate thoughts are I would never want to work for this company. <laughs> okay. If that was who was training me like that, that was sickening. <laughs> How so go, go down that path for a minute. What was it that, that really perked you up and made you f- have this reaction? Oh, just that culture of, of rah, rah, rah. It's just sickeningly disingenuous. And there's no way that they're sincere about saying holla and all that. <laughs> like, whatever. That's that's not even the main meat of the sketch. But there was a lot of stuff to enjoy from the nervousness and the, the cluelessness of the potential employees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is kind of a, a classic comedy format of... They're never going to get out of these three trainees what they are asking for. Yeah. And each time they ask, the audience expects that what they get back is going to be even further from what they're looking for. And that's kind of where the joke lives. Correct. Yeah. So each of the trainees, I thought, really played their character well. They were all absent-minded. They were all positive and agreeable and ready to receive the critique and could do nothing with it. Yeah, so they all they all were able to do that very effectively. I thought Melissa Villasenor in particular had a way of being really kind of like flighty and absent-minded in that role. Like that kind of came across of she's nodding her head in agreement, like I'm understanding it, but it's just not registering. I felt like there was something there that performance-wise was was strong. Uh, yeah, so I, th- I thought it all worked. Yeah, what I found hilarious was that, you know, Mikey Day went first and he his, his problem was that he was just trying too hard. <laughs> It's funny because the other two characters were also just as incompetent. So they were kind of learning the very wrong things from him. Like if you, you might notice that all three of them ended up saying, will you eat? Yes. Yeah. That became a recurring thing that started with him. Sure. And then you have Melissa who appears to get it right, but then you let her talk a little more. (laughs) Yes. She'll derail it. If you you let her keep going. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Yeah, there was some good stuff. And then you have uh, Octavia Spencer, who th- who had thought she had the confidence and was prepared, but in the moment got uh, performance anxiety. <laughs> yes. Yeah, she gets overwhelmed and freezes up like a deer in headlights. They found a lot of fun little little jokes and little little goofs and angles for those trainees. Yeah, and that's what I appreciate, that they all sucked <laughs> at trying to do this job, but they all had their own way of sucking at it. Yes. And that's what made this special to me. Yep. It does feel like they tried to infuse as much into it as they could stuff into it. And uh, I thought it played really well. Let's let's move on. Let's talk about Wine Bar, where Cecily is trying to impress her friends by bringing in a new black friend because apparently she had not known that February was Black History Month. So now she feels like she has to overcompensate. That's where we start. Uh, did this sketch take that idea and get anything out of it? Maybe a little bit. It was hard to look past the fact that they ordered Riesling. <laughs> okay. Such a gross wine. But uh, I got what they were trying to do. Mm. Like, look at me. I'm in tune with black culture and and I love everything about my new black friend. Right. Laughing at things that aren't meant to be jokes. Yeah. It's cringe humor, basically. It's like watching extras or Curb Your mm. Enthusiasm where you feel bad for Cecily Strong. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, all of Cecily's friends, they have summed this up and figured out why this is happening before Cecily even realized it. They understand that she's overcompensating. They understand that she's in, imposing all of these like black friend stereotypes on Octavia Spencer in the interest of trying to present her as something really interesting to her friends that are going to win them over. That was fun. And then the fact that they revealed why Cecily's doing it after the fact is kind of fun that you'd put the pieces together kind of out of order, right? It's not all just set up for you up front. There was some enjoyment there in how they structured it, but I didn't feel like there was much there for them to mine after they'd established that. Yeah. I think it lost a little bit of steam there. A neat idea and a reasonable sketch, but definitely not the strong point for the night. No, that's true. There's one thing that, I was confused about is the fact that Sashir was there as one of the girls. Yeah. It would have made more sense if they didn't have any black friends. Yeah. Because then bringing in Octavia Spencer would have, uh, it would have been more poignant that she's trying to bring a black friend into the group to show her cred as being in tune with, with black people and black history month. Yeah. But the, the big criticism that 
the show often gets is why don't you use Sashir more? You know, she's talented, put her on screen. You know, if, if you've got a girl's issue sketch, you know, girl's night out or whatever, they're probably just going to want to put in as, as many of the players as they can. And I, I can't fault them for that, but it didn't make the message of the sketch or the setup stronger that she was there. Cause that did kind of muddy the waters a bit. It did because if she's going to be there, that means Cecily already had a black friend. Right. So why is she going out her way to, get a fake one when she could just say, Hey, look at my genuine friend here. Who's, who's black. Yep. But where's the comedy in that? Right. Yep. I'm always happy to see Sashir on screen, so I'm not going to fault them too much for it, but you're absolutely right that it didn't help this particular sketch to uh, not draw that distinction more clearly. Let's move on though. The chocolate man, (laughs) Beck Bennett is attempting to win back his former workmates after a, apparently a gun wielding workplace freak out of some sort that involved sexual harassment. So basically he just dug his own grave. There is no coming back from the amount of damage that he did at his work. He's officially fired, but he apparently hasn't gotten the memo and he's trying very hard to win them over by dressing up as a, like an old timey turn of the century kind of candy vendor. (laughs) Yeah. Like that guy from Willy Wonka. Yeah, like how's that for an out and left field concept for a sketch? <laughs> and how is this not a 10 to 1? <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. It's like, oh, they're going to end the show early because <laughs> this is uh, usually a, a show ender a sketch like this. Yeah, very bizarre, very bizarre concept and uh, not the last one that we get of the night. So what did, what did you take away from it? Was this fun? Uh, it was too uncomfortable to be fun. <laughs> Beck just made me feel so unsettled the entire time. <laughs> You know, the the rose, the blush or whatever he had on. Yeah. Every time he he picked up chocolates and threw them around making a mess, like it, it does, it raises a lot of questions because they make mention that he doesn't usually come into work dressed up like that. Like how, how was he normally? And what kind of person thinks this is the way to redeem themselves? Like it's. It's so twisted. It's it's almost as disturbing as like that pre-tape from the very first episode of the season. Oh, the librarian? The librarian. Yeah. Because yeah. that was another one that I know you and I felt very unsettled by. And mm-hmm. this one's up there with that level of discomfort. Okay. I can totally see where you're coming from. I think I may have just embraced it a little more than you. I think I got a good beat on him pretty quick because they did make it clear that he showed up to win them back. So in his twisted psychotic mind, what is the, the most whimsical and charming and friendly thing that he can transform himself into to win them back? The chocolate man, <laughs> you know how I am with clowns and this verges into that territory. <laughs> I really like that as twisted and bizarre as that was. I felt that there was a story there that was entertaining me to watch. I think what made it for me was you can tell as time goes on, he isn't able to stay in character. He came there wanting to be like totally positive and charming and friendly with childlike innocence. But you can tell as soon as people start calling him out and talking to him, that psychotic nature that's just bubbling under the surface, it keeps coming out in little disturbing ways. You know, like he he says to one of the guys, you know, if I had a gun right now, I'd shoot you. Like you can tell that he couldn't stay in this persona if he wanted to, because he's just too unhinged. Yeah. So there's just a lot of layers there that Beck is tapping into. And as a portrait of a really bizarre and like you said, kind of frightening (laughs) character, uh, I was all in. I just, I, I wanted to know, you know, who this guy was and what led to it. Yeah. More questions than answers in this sketch. And that's the beauty of it. Okay, now we are at our official 10 to 1. Spencer's gifts. Octavia Spencer, obviously, because her last name is Spencer, must be the heiress to Spencer's gifts, which is the gag toy store that we all know and love from our boyhood. They take that very simple idea and they build it into a high pressure boardroom situation where she's laying down the law because of the declining quality of the gag gifts at the store. That's what we have to work with. Was there enough humor here? Was this fun? Is this how we wanted to go out? Whatever this sketch had to offer, it was all hung up on a very thin string that could <laughs> yes. have broken at any time. Yeah. There wasn't really much to hang on to this. It's basically an excuse to come up with bad ideas for Spencer's <laughs> gifts. Yeah. 
and then people to get kicked out in result of pitching them. Mm -hmm. There's really not much more to it than that. Yeah. Unless it was saying something really profound that went over my head. No, no, no. It it definitely was not. I think it really came down to someone made the connection of Octavia Spencer's last name is Spencer and voila, here's a sketch. It is fun that they gave her zingers. Like when she fired someone, she does it in a, a very theatrical way, right? Like she's on the apprentice or something like she's trying to add some, some showbiz <laughs> flair to how she's firing people. Yeah. So there, there is a little bit there overall. There wasn't a whole lot, like you said, hanging this thing together. It was a pretty simple joke that uh, I don't know if it was enough to really hold the sketch. My one note on it was a few years back, they had Peter Sarsgaard on. And it just happened to be around the same time that the SARS outbreak was happening. And that was in the news. And so some brilliant writer obviously said, oh, look, his last name is Sarsgaard. What if someone like roped him in to be the pitch man for Peter Sarsgaard's Sarsgaard's? So it's another one of those things where the whole sketch hangs on a goof on his last name. This was kind of in a similar vein of, isn't that just a funny, silly little goof that we can do on Octavia Spencer's name? I don't know if it was as successful as the Peter Sarsgaard one because his persona is so like deadpan and almost a little dark that having him be the pitch man for a product, there's some humor in that because there's a, there's a collision of his personality with what you would expect the pitch man to be. I don't know if making Octavia Spencer into this, this boardroom uh, like this, this ball busting boss CEO type of character. I don't know if that played as well. So to me, this was probably the weakest sketch of the night. Yeah, I I think I would have to agree with you on it being the weakest. Yeah. But since we're talking about Peter Sarsgaard in an episode that happened 10 years ago. Sure. A lot of that episode hung on his name, eh? Because I think they did a sketch where pirates like to say his name because of all the (laughs) R sounds. They just riffed on his name that whole episode. Yeah, the writers were really digging deep that week. (laughs) (laughs) Totally unrelated, but whatever. Yeah, but it makes the point that there are times where you can take something so shallow and dumb as goofing on someone's last name, and you can make some moderately funny comedy out of it. In this case, I just don't feel like like it it really came together that that well. But otherwise, uh, there was a lot of consistency and a, and a lot of surprisingly strong live performance sketch material tonight. So for what I think was meant to be a very... Uh, muted and run of the mill show. I, I felt like there was some good stuff to take away. I just don't think this was, was among it. Yeah. Agreed. Okay. Let's uh, talk about our moment of the night. I'm thinking I'm going to give my moment of the night to the whole Capri pouch. Sure. Fiasco. Cause that was some really great uh, use of props and, you know, it was a, it was a risk because mm-hmm. we've all had to deal with those juice boxes at some point. <laughs> they, they can be dangerous. That's true. <laughs> so yeah, that would have to be my moment of the night when he decides to smash that into his face. Both him and Mikey day really were in the moment and really selling that material. So yeah, that's good. My moment of the night is during Octavia Spencer's monologue. There's a moment where they cut to a side shot of her that crosses home base and the camera pans up just enough that you can see myself <laughs> in the audience. And obviously I, I think that that really was the, the, the shining moment for this episode. So really, no, of course not. I'm not giving it to that. <laughs> My moment of the night is Melissa Villasenor pulling out a spot on Kate McKinnon impression that I'm certain when she does that backstage, when they're goofing around trying to pull the show together, that must kill. People must love that. It it was a fun moment for the show. It it got a good reaction from the audience as a whole, but I think for real fans that are really tuned into Kate and her mannerisms and are also tuned into Melissa Villasenor's potential as an impressionist, I think seeing that all come together and it being a nice little wink at another player in the show, that was a lot of fun. I I think that that was, that was really great. So I'm going to give it to that. I think this is why Kate was comfortable um, kind of taking the sidelines to be Kellyanne Conway and all those bumpers. Sure. She has her understudy there doing the role for her. Yeah. I'll just get Mantown to do it. No problem. (laughs) All right. Best overall sketch. The whole Zoopolis sketch really showcased the capabilities of some players that, you know, we never got to see enough of this from them. And this really kind of solidifies a niche for them. 
and this is this is an important moment for Melissa and for Alex as well. Shows that they have something to really bring to the table. And I was more warm on the concept than you were, I think. Okay. But yeah, it was more so for the the performance that I loved it. Sure. I enjoyed the sketch too. It won me over because there was just so many fun impressions that there was a lot there to enjoy and bite into. But if we're going to be honest about it, it was never supposed to be about the setup. You know, Zootopia was inconsequential. It's not like they sat down and said, oh, we've got this really brilliant goof that we want to do on Zootopia. Oh, you know what? Maybe we can build in some impressions. That's not how it happened. It was, we've got all these impressions. We're in the back half of the season. Let's build a vehicle for their impressions. That is what drove the sketch. So since that is what they were shooting for, it was very successful and the impressions were all good. So yes, it's a win of a sketch, no doubt, but there's nothing brilliant from the sketch part of it (laughs) that we would be pointing at. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now my thinking is the actual strongest sketch is probably the cold open. If we're looking at performance, if we're looking at even the technical merits of uh, having seen how they did the green screen stuff, I really thought that was cool. And the amount of people they brought in, in quick succession there, it was a fun sketch structurally. It was a great vehicle to let Kate do what Kate does and be brilliant. It was a fun mashup of Forrest Gump, which is beloved and well-known. So that's a great, a great thing to, to goof on with topical things that are are current and relevant. There was a whole lot that came together really nice. That was a good stew of a sketch. Now, MVP. Give it to Mr. Moffat. Yeah, good. He was all over this episode. He had as much screen time as some of the vets. Mm -hmm. Aside from just raw screen time, he had a lot of great, really juicy material to work with and absolutely killed it. All of his impressions were great his take on Eric Trump and how he played off Mikey day. And that just, just that whole panel was amazing. This was just a great night for Alex. And I'm really happy to see him succeeding. And this guy may have what it takes to get a full seven years out of this show. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think you're wrong. I think he's also in a good position because as we started the show talking about how some of the senior cast are probably going to be moving on to other ventures. I don't think the show is going to be under the same amount of pressure to keep itself lean and trim. If the high paying seven year plus talent is exiting the show that puts more in the budget to groom up and comers. And we haven't seen anything weak enough from these three that I think they would say, let's swap them out and try someone new. I think they'll have room to actually try new people, but still keep these guys around too. So I don't think he's in any danger, not just because of circumstance, but like you said, he is demonstrating a lot of talent, a lot of versatility in this show. He was a straight person in a lot of sketches, utility in a lot of sketches, but also had a few really brilliant performance moments where he was leading. And, uh, that's great for a featured player. That's a really strong showing. I agree with you. I'm giving it to him. Not just because we're BFF now, because I spent 30 seconds chatting with him <laughs> in the lobby of 30 rock, but this genuinely was a great show for him on a scale of classic, great, typical week or train wreck. How would you rate this episode? I think we got a great episode here. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it wasn't all amazing. There were some low points. Mm-hmm. There was just some really good stuff here. Plus, we had a really great musical guest. The host was utilized well. They found good things to use her for. There were great sketches, great performances. You know, across the board, there was something good to say about pretty much every aspect of production. Okay. Even when it comes to set design and and special effects. So this is a good example to show people what SNL is all about. And the magic that they can pull off every week. Okay. I can respect that. I disagree. I think that this is probably the easiest one for me to, to pick. I think that this is typical. I think that this is as typical as we've seen this season. Like this is so easy for me to think of as a typical episode because it did fire pretty much end to end. I mean, it petered out a little bit in the back half. They obviously shuffled their weakest material to the back half. They always do that. We expect that, but the host competent, but not groundbreaking. The sketches were all competent, not groundbreaking. The musical guest, I mean, you were a little warmer on them than I was, but again, for me, even though it was a mixed bag, it wasn't, there was nothing bad about it. Like I didn't walk away feeling like it was a a miss. 
So for me, everything is like right down the middle, pretty consistent aside from maybe that 10 to one, there really isn't anything I'm pointing at saying that that really misfired. And that is typical SNL. Yeah. That's pretty much all I have to say about it. You got any other thoughts? No, uh, that's it. Maybe we could uh, call this one. Yeah, that's cast. Thanks to my guest, Steve Finn. You can connect with Steve on Facebook at Transparency CHMR. If you'd like to support our podcast, please consider using and bookmarking our Amazon and other affiliate links found at snlafterparty.fm. It costs you absolutely nothing to use our affiliate links when shopping online, but it really helps us in covering our costs and is greatly appreciated. We'll be back in one week when SNL returns with host Scarlett Johansson and musical guest Lord. This has been episode number 16 of the Saturday Night Live After Party podcast. I'm John Murray. Good night and have a pleasant tomorrow. to Father John Misty. I have to tell you guys, this has been the most exhilarating week of my life, so I hope you have the best week of your life. say that seems more than circumstantial perhaps but even if it was there's just no proof that having the same names as these drugs has caused these women any harm really you think it's nice to be associated with high cholesterol and erectile dysfunction no it's terrible sorry see he knows this is the biggest corporate injustice since my aunt octavia worked at that yogurt cap company sorry it's a travesty